is up? How you living? How you feeling? L-E-F-K-O-E man here with the sharpest man in football, Warren Sharp. You can always find his stuff on sharpfootballanalysis.com, which by the way, three and one last week on the free week, including a riveting Monday night football game that had me and Warren texting each other like 15, uh, 21 year old, recently able gamblers. Um, and, and really if you bet the over and you took the Seahawks, the reason it hit was because of Warren's new shoes. So Warren, you know, you can say to everybody right now, you're welcome for the over cause you wore those lucky shoes. Yeah, that actually pushed it to four and one hitting that one. And oh, it was, excuse me, excuse oh, me. It was, it was the, it was the new Odell's, the, uh, the tuxedo Odell's. Yeah. So Warren sent me a picture uh, he's like, I just put these on. And then all of a sudden it was like 49ers defensive touchdown, Russell Wilson, incredible third down play. And he, I just kept texting him. You like at one point I thought Warren took the shoes off and I got very angry. And then yeah. he was like, no, I didn't take them off. And then they missed the field goal. It was perfect. Yeah, no, it was, I, I, I was continuing to rock him. I said, next time I'm up there, which I was supposed to be up there today. Um, but we're, we're pushing that back. So we're going to do a double header in the postseason. But um, yeah, next time I'm up there, I'm where I'm uh, showcasing them. The other thing that I, I think Warren and I have been sharing, but also disagreeing on is I told Warren yesterday, man, it is brick in New York City right now. And he goes, oh, you mean the hawk. And so I think this is a regional thing where brick, I believe, is the perfect way to describe what's going on in New York right now, because it feels as though if you took a cool brick and you put it against your face, that's what it feels like. There's this thing that happens in New York, Warren, where like the city preemptively puts salt down, and so all the streets turn white, and it makes it feel like it's colder than it is. But right now, brick. And how would you describe the hawk? Like, what is the hawk? Hawk is out. Hawk is just like, it's, it's coming for you. It's windy. It's cold. It's blustery. You want to avoid the hawk. It's swooping. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, I find they're, they're different. You can use both. I don't, when it's windy, I don't think it's brick. I think it's brick when you walk out and it's just cold. Like it's just, it's like a still cold, but the hawk is, I think when you get whipped in the face. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, Warren and I had one of our uh, late night talks last night, and we've decided that there's going to be two things that are going to be coming in next week's pod. Uh, one of them is going to be weighted EDSR, at, and the other thing, excuse me, is going to be a predictive model. So we were talking late last night, and I said, you know, what happens with your early down success rate? Because I feel like every week we do it, it's like, oh, you know what? They still like Buffalo from early in the season. Can we do it to more recent? You said, let me run my models, and we'll start that up next week, which is awesome. And then the predictive model is more about what teams do, like – if they run on first down, what do they do in second down? And now you believe is a good time where you feel like you have enough data points to almost be able to predict what coaches are going to do, right? Right, exactly. Um, the predictive model basically looks at what was the prior play and then what is the next play. So I can take a look at what teams did um, the prior play and then what they're going to do next play. So perfect examples. Number one, 
If they run on first and 10, what do they do on second down? If they throw an incompletion on first and 10 and are faced with second and 10, what do they call on that play? So some coaches just have a knack for being uber conservative, making inefficient play calls. And the other thing I can look at beyond just, well, what do they call? I can actually look at, you know, what's the efficiency of that? So if they called pass, this is what they're doing. If they called run, this is what they're doing. And one of the worst decisions that coaches make, and I see it time and time again, is they have a running back get a 15, 20 yard explosive run. You know, he's working through the line. He's working downfield, busting his ass as hard as he can because he sees a big gain and maybe the end zone's in sight. He gets tackled. They come up and call a run play to the exact same running back. It makes no sense. This guy's tired. He just expended himself. Yeah. Defense is tired. Bring in a new guy. Let a different guy carry the rock. If we, you're gonna- we, we call that the Billy O'Brien special. Yep, Billy Bob. Um, with that in mind, I've always, now that you're saying it, I mean, do you believe that NFL teams might have people that do predictive analytics, like working with them on game day? Because if I was a defensive coordinator and I knew that after a run on first down that this team not only threw it, but I could also figure out you know, where they throw it on second down at a 78% clip. Do you think that that information could be processed in that 40-second game clock and really in that 5 to 10 seconds just to go, hey, 78% pass on this down? And do you think defensive coordinators, offensive coordinators, or mainly defensive coordinators, would want that? It would definitely be valuable and useful, but I don't think any of that exists right now in the NFL. I don't Mm. think they're running their models real time spitting out information back to those guys. Uh, But there's definitely some live in-game coaching for the offensive coordinator and for the defensive coordinator that I've been working on a little bit behind the scenes that I think would be extremely valuable and useful for guys. Any, cause like I'm noticing right now on like NBC does this a lot on their broadcasts. Well, they'll go, if they get a touchdown, if they get this fourth down, win probability goes up and all that stuff. And so I imagine that NFL teams, when they're making crucial decisions, fourth downs, goal to go situations, they're looking at those percentages. I just wasn't sure how pervasive you think in game analytics and models are right now in the NFL in terms of decision making. Not very. Hmm. And do you, how, how much, like, what are some things that you think could be integrated into the NFL that, like, if you were going to make a pitch to an NFL team that they should do? Yeah, they need to incorporate, um, they need to do a better job of self-scout. I don't think teams self-scout enough uh, during the, they, they focus on a lot during the bye week. We saw like Julian Edelman go out and talk about we need to be self we, we did a lot of self-scouting this week for our offense, try to plug some holes. Um like I look at self-scout all week long for every single team that I'm assisting. I'm, I'm looking at what they could be maximizing on their end in addition to the matchups and the weaknesses of their opponent. Mm. So you're saying really it's not just about running predictive models on your opponent and seeing what they do. It's often turning that around and going, holy crap, when we throw on first, we run on second way too much and, get, and becoming less predictive is what you're saying. Well, not not just the predictive play calling, but just in general, like what are we good at? You know, certain teams like they might be uh, doing a lot of three step drops from shotgun and and the quarterback's actually much better if he just zero to step drop from shotgun. If they're if they're like so nothing to do with like what the play was before. Um, but but certainly that's a factor too. 
Well, there was one team that apparently self-scouted, and maybe it's just because a personnel impact happened, and that was Kareem Hunt coming to the Browns. The much-beleaguered Browns on this podcast and every other, really, media publication ever. Uh, But on this podcast, we've talked a lot about their obsession with three wide receivers and their inability to go heavy. Well, Kareem Hunt came back in, and we saw a wild swing from the Browns that led to a win at home over the previously 6-2 and Buffalo Bills. They go from running, you know, a lot of one running back sets to now a lot of two trying to get Chubb and Kareem Hunt on the field at the same time. And it looked like it was a lot more successful. What did you see when you kind of dove in? And do we think now that the Browns have turned the corner because Hunt is now playing? I think it gives them the freedom to not use the fact that they're both of their tight ends are not that great as a handicap say, oh, well, we can't use two tight end sets. You know, uh, the the analytics that like Warren is looking at on Twitter and sharing with us like that, those we can't do because we don't believe in our tight ends. In this situation, now you got two backs. And what having two backs allows the team to do is not simply just use two backs all the time and call running plays. But when those guys are out there, it causes confusion for the defense. They don't know exactly if it's a pass or if it's going to be a run. One guy goes in motion, one guy split out wide. Uh, The linebackers are having to figure out who they're going to match up on. And everything allows Baker to have more time in the pocket. Were the personnel numbers that different, Warren? Oh, yeah. They, They were using... So when they passed the football... They were passing the football out of 11 personnel only 32% of the time. Wow. This is like a 90% team earlier in the year. Yeah, they were up at 90 to 92% the first couple of weeks. They hit 89% against Seattle. They hit 89, 83% against Denver. Um, so wow. absolutely, this was a team that was very high on that scale. Um, and even from a running perspective, they only ran the ball out of 11 personnel, 26% of the time, the lowest mark of their season. Uh, They were using 21, which is the two backs, one uh, tight end set. They were also using some 20, which is two backs, no tight end, three wides out there. So they were mixing and matching a lot of different groupings, and it definitely was helping their efficiency numbers against the Bills. Again, we're recording this on Thursday. Browns play the Steelers on Thursday night. So uh, we'll see if the Browns continue to do that uh, as you listen to this podcast. I wanted to look at 2019 and some trends. I wanted to do some self-scouting of our own. And now that we're going into week 11, we're in the double digits and we're making a run at the playoffs. And we can kind of see what are the trends right now going on. And the first thing I want to talk about is you're seeing something in the NFL right now that you haven't seen in a very long time, and that is the home road splits of quarterbacks. What is happening this year that's different than any other year? Manish Tana. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, And this just goes back to what we were talking about previously with the lack of home field advantage and home field advantage disappearing. Um, What we are seeing is Quarterbacks that are on the road actually across like five different metrics, whether it's um, yards per pass attempt, whether it's explosive pass uh, success rates, whether it's overall passing success rates, whether it's passer rating, whether it's touchdown to intercept ratio, they are equal to or better than quarterbacks at home, which is shocking. I mean, I haven't seen that in any of my years covering the NFL. So it's definitely um, an interesting trend, which plays into why our teams on the road covering the spreads better and performing better Mm. 
And that gets back to something we shared at 33% the very beginning of the year. Home field advantage is not worth as much as it once was. And when you look at the numbers, that gets kind of to the next point, which is some of the trends. Um, I have them here in front of me. Number one, unders are coming in more than overs this year. We're at 51.4% unders. Um, and this is Warren was running his uh, numbers last night. Uh, there's not a huge difference there in unders and overs, but unders do have a slight advantage. Home underdogs, which is something that, you know, anytime you're raised by people that like to gamble, they'll go, it's always good to find a home dog. Well, guess what? Home dogs are covering 47.8% of the time. That means those road favorites, 52.2% of the time. So in a weird way right now, road favorites have been a better bet than home dogs. But then we get to the wild one, which is home favorites versus a road dog. And we're seeing something... Home favorites are covering only 40% of the time. That is right. Road dogs right now are 60% of the time covering the spread. And Warren, have you seen this in the last five, 10 years? No, this is the, 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 the rate at which these teams are covering a spread is the largest in any of the last 30 years. So it's so three decades. We have not seen road dogs cover at this rate, which currently is 60 percent. Correct. Nothing, wow. nothing like this. Nothing like this at all. And and so, OK, so I have some of the notes here. So ro- uh, home favorites are covering only 40. The second lowest in the last three decades is 44.2. I mean, that's 4.2%. Even that is a huge margin of a gap. Like, this is super outlier status right now. Super. Absolutely super. Um, You're right. Like, there's been four years in the last 30 where the, like, lowest numbers that it had been prior to this year was 44%. Um, that home favorites covered the spread. And now it's all the way down to 40%. So it's a complete outlier what's happening in the NFL this year, for sure. So... Here's the note, though, that I think people, they, they hear a, a data point and then they cling to it. So right now, there are 100% of our listeners, I would imagine, that are going through the spreads right now and they're circling every single road dog and they're going, it's a historic year. They're covering it at 60% clip. I'm jumping on this train this week. And I think from someone like you that does so much work and looks at so many data points, I would imagine this is the part of betting that becomes frustrating because people want one nugget and they base everything off of that one nugget and you're sitting there going, get more data points. Can you express that for me, please? Yeah, the hard part is like it's it's this quick society. Everybody's got a short attention span. Everybody doesn't have time to dig into everything. They want like, what is the trend? Like, give me the trend that's going to win. Like I've been hearing one recently where it's like prime time unders have been rock solid. And then like, I would like when I watch that video, I go, Ooh, you know what? Interesting prime time unders. I'm going to might jump on this. When you hear that, what do you think? I think good luck. Um, (laughs) That's not a winning strategy long-term just because a certain small sample of games that have occurred in prime time uh, have gone under the total. There's nothing special about the fact that these games are going. It's it's not as if like because it's a nighttime game that all of a sudden the football won't travel as far and 
passes are more likely to be dropped. There, there's no logical explanation for why primetime games have gone under, except for there's a small sample size. Certain teams are playing in those games that are more challenged offensively, and the games are playing out more likely to go under. Now, the one element that you do have to consider is the fact that when you got primetime um, games, Linesmaker does tend to slightly inflate the uh, point spread. Right. And the- to favor the action that he knows is going to come in. So he knows more people are going to want to bet overs. So what he's going to do is he's going to play a little bit more, jack that lineup slightly, but it's only marginal. It's not as if it's enough to just say, I'm blindly betting every single primetime under because the lines maker is over inflating this by multiple points. It does not work that way whatsoever. So you can't just look at one data point, you can't look at one statistic, even EDSR, which is like the bread and butter statistic. You can't just look at that and say, right. oh, I'm only betting the best EDR matchups, EDSR matchups, because you may not be taking into consideration injuries, quarterbacks, and a multitude of other things. That's why winning at sports betting takes a lot of work, a lot of effort. It is not easy. It's why I'm sitting here from like 8 a.m. until 2 a.m., with my odd screen sitting right here and five other monitors, so six in total, and I'm sitting here inches from them all day long with very short breaks, it's because this is a grind. This is hard. It's not easy to be successful betting sports for a living. Your edge is very marginal. So you have to work your ass off and you can't just look at one thing and just try to beat Vegas based on one little metric. So when I get messages from people that tell me that certain referees are like 0-8 to the, or like eight in a row to the under, stuff like that, and I get so excited and I call all my friends and we put money on it because we feel feel like we found this one nugget that there's this thing Warren in the betting community called the tip. You get a tip from somebody, you enter it right away. Cause there's just something about getting that little nugget. And that's the hardest part, man. Cause when you feel like you have secret information, even though it's one data point, you feel like you've conquered the world. Like you feel like you got a map to find the, the national treasure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and look, being able to handicap referees, it is useful. Okay. Oh, you do that. It is, it is useful. There are certain things that we have looked at in the past based upon, um, I'll just put it vaguely, game locale. Um, the uh, example that the league wants to try to showcase to a larger audience or a different audience, certain referees, not, not just the individuals, but like the league itself, does not want there to be a lot of penalties, right? So in mm. certain games, you can look to those trends historically and factor that into what you're doing. Um, certain crews and referees, you know, when they get to the postseason, they change. It's like the all-star crews. So it's right. this referee with these, this umpire and these other officials. So that's different. But during the regular season, you can pick up on some trends. Um, certain guys might call more offensive holding than other crews. And so Illegal that's- Illegal hands to the face. I know where you're going, so let's just go there. Should we? Might as well mention him. Okay, so I did get a tip from somebody, uh, and it was, I don't, okay, so I, it's interesting because I kind of want to bet this tip, uh, but so this is going to come out after the game, actually, because he's doing Thursday night. Uh, His name is freaking Cleet Blakeman, and Cleet Blakeman loves to call penalties, and if you look at the trends right now, I believe he's 8-0 to the under, and I also believe that he's like something like 10, like, 
Nine to two to the underdog. I, I texted it to you. I have to see what it is because I didn't know we were going to go here right now. But he was also the dude that called the illegal hands to the face on the Lions. Remember that game where everybody said they had the game and it suddenly went the other way? And so this is a guy that I mentioned him to Warren and Warren goes, oh, there's a folder on that guy. I had no idea. I don't think people know this, but at the same point, Warren, we're outsiders. So it's okay to say these things, right? Please. Okay. Yeah, Cleet, um, look, I tweeted this, so I'm okay with eight, talking. Eight no unders this season, 11 and two to dogs against the spread, Mr. Cleet Blakeman. This guy <sighs> has been the worst official that I have seen in the league this season by a margin. This guy is the most frustrating. So we were on the Lions against the Packers. Fortunately, he didn't cost us the cover, but he yes. cost money line. Um that was the multiple illegal hands to the face, plus a few other calls that were made uh, that worked against the Lions in favor of the Packers, and everybody was up in arms after the game, including the crew, including the crew. They couldn't yep. understand it. John Perry, who was the ESPN um, uh, like official in the booth, he didn't understand what these calls were. So Cleet called that game, and then two weeks later, Cleek goes over to London. Actually, it was three weeks later. Cleek goes over to London November 3rd. Um, that was actually the last game that he did. I don't think he called the game um, last week. But Cleek goes over, because he's calling this Thursday game. Cleek goes over to London and he has that ridiculous call that I tweeted out and literally got like three million impressions on Twitter where um, Calais Campbell goes to try to tackle Deshaun Watson and goes right next to him, like doesn't even hit him like his elbow, his forearm hits Deshaun Watson, but his head, his shoulders just completely missed him because Deshaun slipped past him. And they threw a flag saying lowering the helmet and and uh, hit to the head of a defensive player, some nonsense like that. And the replay clearly shows and Rich Eisen was like, what are these guys calling? Yes. Like, ridiculous everybody was going up so it's not as if like you and i are the only ones who can't say this cleet blakeman sucks he sucks and this game i you know i don't know what's going to happen in this game and i don't know if the trends are going to continue moving forward but this right, guy of course been efficient uh as an official he's not been seeing things clearly and i just don't like watching games with him and the reason being is this so i hope thursday night football goes great <laughs> i want consistency yes trying to handicap games. I'm trying to watch games. I'm trying to work with teams. I want consistency. You can be a guy who tends to call a little bit more of this. You could be a guy who tends to call a little bit more of that. I don't love that. I, uh, but, but at least don't be so inconsistent with some of your calls. What I really would love is league wide. Everybody knew what lowering the helmet and hitting a defensive player was. League-wide, everybody called the same way, uh, hands to the face. League-wide, everybody called pass interference the same way. But especially in a game, you can't have unfair scenarios one way or another. That definitely cannot happen. Uh, the guy that hooked me up to this information uh, is Michael Oxenish, a uh, little U UMass Amherst kind of guy. Uh, so if, he's, if it hits this week, man, I'm... I'm betting on Blakeman. But I think the reason I think Cleek's gotten away from it, uh, Warren, for so long is one, his name is Cleet, 
And there's something about seeing his name on your screen where you're like, oh, Cleet. Second is, I don't remember if you remember the first bad lip reading NFL that blew up, which is when Adrian Peterson was like, orange peanut for me. It was like, like just like a video that everyone loved about the NFL. Cleet has one where he's like, I want to put room full of um, uh, beanbag chairs. And I think that like because his name is Cleet and because he was in that video, and because also, like, every referee somewhat looks alike, uh, we've kind of given him a pass. But when I, when we started reminiscing about all of the games that he's done and how all of them from the Detroit game and on to the London game where there's been, I go, wow, those were my least favorite games of the year. And the way they were called was so muddled and there was no game flow at all. It made me realize, wow, there's a little bit of truth to this. Again, I don't want to live on one data point, but... They have so much control of the game that it does it does raise a lot of questions for me. It really does. I mean, look, he, he's he's an attorney. It's not as if he's not accomplished. It's not as if he's unintelligent. I, I know mean, I have such an issue that they have other jobs, but yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. So so maybe full time guys, maybe guys who dedicate a little bit more to their craft. Um, I think part of the problem with officiating has been the fact that all these other networks are springing up and By the bringing way, in. I love I, I love how you just said like an attorney as though he has like the moral uh, judgment of like a judge. You know what I mean? Like, oh no, definitely. You, you know, uh, attorney. Now that like, I think about it, yeah, like what the fuck, attorney? Okay, I actually don't trust it. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want to talk bad about attorneys. I need they, one. they, they, the the fact with Cleet, and I'll just sidestep that one entirely. Um, <laughs> the the thing with Cleet is that um, there are issues that I don't. I just don't like inconsistency. And I'll just go back to that and we can move on. But hopefully he gets back on track. Um, I've seen him in years past. I didn't recall him being this bad. Uh, but there's definitely it's frustrating when you see games consistently with him in it that have problems like this. So uh, right now I'm going to do a little transition. I'm going to go from one CB to another CB. So we're going to go from Cleet Blakeman to circadian biorhythm. You know, because that's the natural transition of topics. Uh, You mentioned this to me and I went, I have 100 percent heard of it. I would say the most popular. I think this is a version of that is the West Coast team playing the one o'clock East Coast game. Is that also circadian biorhythm? It is, yeah, but teams have obviously adjusted and adapted right. that a little bit. But yes, I, I feel like the West Coast team playing the one o'clock East Coast game is the equivalent of saying like always bet a home dog. Like it was a really good piece of advice in like 2004, but now like teams have adjusted. But I had never really heard of the East Coast team on the West Coast, and because we have an instance of this on Sunday Night Football with the Bears going to the Rams, it is an interesting thing. And you pointed out just a trend that was existing that we need to kind of keep our eye on because for since the the CBA there's been a huge advantage for the West Coast teams. Yes. Um so the issue becomes when you're an East Coast team and you're going to play on the West Coast in a primetime spot. So it's like uh 8 8:30 kickoff something around that nature. Um any of the primetime games. When you get to like the second half of that game 
it feels to your body like it's 10 o'clock, right? You're on East Coast time. Um, it's a three-hour time zone difference. The game kicks off at 8.30 your time. That second half is starting around 10 o'clock. And, and not that players don't smell the salts and get jacked up and play all the way through. The, the difference is not that. The difference is that the West Coast team, that 10 o'clock time when it starts the second half is actually 7 o'clock to them. So just from a, from a, a biorhythm and just from a mentality, like a mental perspective, they feel earlier in the day. They're used to it being earlier in the day. They're a little bit more awake, in tune with things. Their bodies are reacting slightly differently. And every little edge helps when you say that that affects all 53 players. Like if all 53 players have a small little minor infection uh, um, impact of this, then that is going to total up. And so certainly it was much bigger factor at one point in time that you could really look to that issue and say, I like this dog that's coming from the East Coast playing in primetime, but man, I'm a little bit nervous about this biorhythm thing. Yeah, but I mean, the numbers themselves are crazy. Yeah. What, what the home teams were straight up. I can say it, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Home teams. So on the West Coast, when an East Coast team would come and play them at night in primetime, there were 37 games in between 2011 and 2016. And the home team won 31 of those 37 games. 31 and 6 straight up. And they covered the spread 67% of the time. I mean, this was clockwork. Were you just over that time, Warren, just being like, and that's a cash, and that's a cash? Like, were you able to take advantage of that? Um, oh, we definitely were able to take advantage of it. Also, what it allowed us to do oftentimes is steer clear of some of these dogs. It was just like I said, we tend to play a little bit more underdogs just by our style, especially favorites in prime time, like we were talking about overs. They tend to like increase that line a slight little bit. So we're trying to steer clear a little bit more of some of those favorites, looking a little bit more at some of the underdogs. And then when you come out with something that says, uh, you know, we, we like this team, we like the matchup, we like the va- added value. However, mm. East Coast team. Now, it has changed since 2017. The home teams in these situations are 6-10 and 10 straight up, 5-9-2 and two against the spread. If you look at what's happened so far this year, Browns went West Coast to the Niners, got stomped 31-3. Steelers went West Coast to Chargers. Every game with the Chargers, all six of their losses have been by one score or less, and the Steelers pulled that one out, so it went against it. But there's a number of reasons. One, it's a small sample size since 2017. Maybe teams are adjusting their sleep schedules, but as you said, that's probably highly unlikely that they would go to that step. I just We don't have faith in NFL teams like that. Or it could be what we've been saying recently, which is the home field advantage is also beginning to dissipate more in sports. But it is an interesting nugget, and it may come into effect with the Bears going to the Rams on Sunday night. Yeah, that's the team that it affects it. It definitely has been compensated for. Small sample size could be the explanation as to why this is not no it's no longer something that you can bet on and I've said from the beginning you can't just bet on a one single trend anyway. So it would be a situation where 
okay, I, I normally would take this dog, hammer this dog, because I love the matchup and the value here, but I'm going to reduce it from one unit to 0.75 because of the uncertainty with the biorhythm issue. Um, so that's typically what it was, but it, it, it's been compensated for potentially. Um, it still is probably a slight edge to the home teams, though, out west. I think what you just said there is great. Hey, if you guys out there, you're a $50 game better, you're a $100 game better, maybe you're a $25 better. You're taking in these little data points. Ooh, I like this. Ooh, you know what? I don't like that they're traveling out there. You don't have to bet the same amount every game, guys. Like, you're, again, we're, we're trying to find what 1% of your bankroll is, and that's going to be your unit, and you're going to kind of figure it out. But, like, you can bet less on a game. Don't always look at the money line, the parlay, and go, yeah, but if I, if I hit this, I make that much more. It's If you're doing this, have a strategy to it. Also, one other nugget before we get to EDSR that I want to say is this is just something that I noticed. If you go onto Warren's website, let's say you signed up for the emails, let's say you signed up for the service, uh, and I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here. Games over spreads, that is Warren. You have people that work for you for props, right? You're not doing, like, the prop bets. No. Okay, but no. you but you have people that you trust, Rich Rebar and all those guys, and, and they do it, but you are only doing lines and spreads and totals. Exactly. In years past, I dabbled a little bit in props. I enjoy doing it, but... This year, uh, with more responsibility that comes with working for teams, um, I am moving away from doing the prop bets, and I brought on some other guys who are taking care of the prop bets for me. So sides and totals, those are me on the site. Anything from the betting side of thing is me. The prop side, I've kind of resourced a couple other guys who I like. I uh Okay, let's move to EDSR, and again, uh, we're going to start next week doing weighted EDSR, just because me and Warren, we're doing some self-scouting, and we're like, we continue to get these huge margins, we continue to get teams that maybe we're not that sure about, and to be honest, we looked at all of the matchups this week, the mismatches, and it's a very weird week, and so we're like, let's adjust our own models, but this week, we, we got to look at it. I also watched Warren get very defensive, because he did say... Before last week, even though Indy has an EDSR advantage over Miami, because of the injuries to the quarterback, the wide receivers, he would not recommend this. So while EDSR went 2-2 two and two straight up last week, he said, I would have never submitted the Colts. So I'm going to give that to you and say that it is 2-1, which means that on the year it is 16-4. and four. And that means also that last week it was one and two against the spread. Uh, the other ones that uh, the Rams were not able to handle it against the Steelers. Uh, the Ravens obviously handled it big time over the Bengals. And the Bucks got the win over the Cardinals, but they did not cover against the spread. Obviously, Indy. Is that okay? Did I handle that all right for you and your precious EDSR? You, you are correct. I'm, I'm super competitive, and I did not like the fact that we were going to be counting that. Um, I'm glad you took it off, but I was okay if you were going to keep it on. We were going to change it moving forward. If there's a game, the reason for the Colts, obviously, is their whole season, their statistics were earned by a different quarterback. Most right. of the game had T.Y. Hilton. Now, all of a sudden, you take away, you're down to your third-string quarterback, effectively entering camp. You're down to no T.Y. Hilton. Paris Campbell's injured, too. Who are you throwing the football to? And, of course, Miami trending in the right direction. No Josh Rosen. That hurt them at the beginning of the year. Right. Now, Fitzpatrick, it was just like two 
EDSR is heading in different directions. And so that's why I would have, I mean, that point spread was a little bit ridiculous. We probably should have been on Miami in the first half last week. That was one that we definitely missed. And I'll say that's why, that's why we had a conversation last night and I was like, man, we got to move to weighted. So we're going to do that moving forward, but let's look at this week. Number one, the biggest matchup you have by a margin over 40. It's the, it's another one that I don't know if you actually like Buffalo over Miami and Buffalo in this game is favored by six, but this kind of feels like two teams going in the right directions. So, oh, great, Czar Warren Sharp, would you like to submit this as an official EDSR pick? Um, Buffalo, because Buffalo is the same, we will submit it. Because Buffalo is the same. In the other game, Indy was totally different. Gotcha. And Miami was different. Here, we're still dealing with Miami, and Miami is definitely trending better. Um, Ignore EDSR because, again, it's just one data point. Let's talk about this game just for sure. one quick second. The reason that Miami doesn't have as big of an edge, I know they're 2-0 and the last couple of games and trending in the right direction, is the way that you beat the Bills is you run on them. Mm. And right now, Miami traded away Kenyon Drake. Their other running back is hurt. They don't really have the ability to run the ball very effectively here. And we know that their defense is kind of mediocre. Obviously, last week, their defense didn't get exposed because you're dealing with a third-string quarterback with no wide receivers. So it was difficult to, to expose that defense. I think the Bills are in a pretty good spot here. I don't know that I would advocate laying six points on the road in Miami. Um, right. But in terms of being able to win this game— it definitely would really surprise me if Miami put a third straight win together. I won't put it past Ryan Fitzpatrick. He hates, you know, he loves going up against teams that he used to play for and proving them wrong. So, you know, the Bills are a team he used to play for. He'll pour it all on the line. The guy's a true gamer, and I love the grit that he brings to the table. But um, I'm not, I won't yank this one off just because of. Miami. And I'll say this. So Buffalo last year uh, went to Miami and I believe it was a, yeah, they lost. They lost in Miami last year. They've lost two of the last three years. The one, the, yep. the one year they won, it was by a very close margin. I will say though, that I feel like some teams underestimate Miami and because Buffalo has already played Miami and was losing in the fourth quarter and was like a Ryan Fitzpatrick interception in the end zone away from maybe even losing that game outright. I always wonder because it's a divisional game and you're definitely not going to take Ryan Fitzpatrick lightly that maybe it's a different situation, but Buffalo has not had that much success down there in Miami. So it's definitely a big line for a matchup like that. Yeah, it is. Um, again, I'm not laying the points with my, with Buffalo this week, but it's, it's, it's an interesting game for all the points that you just alluded to. It's funny, a lot of the teams in the AFC East that are familiar with going to Miami still tend to struggle there sometimes. Well, it's because they live in Buffalo and they're getting a free night in Miami. And so sure. when you when that's the situation, live nightclub sounds like a pretty good spot because they don't they have Dave and Busters. I apologize to all of our listeners in Buffalo. I'll come out there one day. Second biggest advantage is the super injured San Francisco 49ers over the Cardinals. And the Cardinals right now are 11 point dogs. Here is the injury report. George Kittle, I believe, is already out. 
Okay. Joe Staley going to be sidelined a couple of weeks with surgery on his fingers because apparently he broke all of them. Emmanuel Sanders is looking like he might be back, but Matt Breida is also out. This went from a very healthy Niners team to a very injured Niners team out of nowhere, and they're 11-point favorites over Arizona, another EDSR mismatch that we weren't excited to see, to be honest. No, really, really not excited to see this. I think that the Arizona Cardinals are trending in the right direction. Uh, I believe we spoke about it on your show last week, how the Cardinals for the first four or five weeks were using way too much 10 personnel, way too many four wide receiver sets. They made some modifications, are using far less, a little bit more 11 personnel, which is a standard three wide receiver sets. It puts a tight end out on the field, can help the offensive line a little bit. Um, I think the way to attack the San Francisco 49ers is spread them out, run the football a little bit. And that's exactly what the Cardinals can do well. Um, the Cardinals, I will say this, David Johnson looks done. I mean, Awful. This, I don't know what, what like these running backs this is why you say, you know, you got to be careful about running backs. Yes. Remember two years ago, two, three years ago, this guy, I know he sustained some injuries, but like night and day taking the league by storm, one of the best running backs in the NFL, one of the best fantasy producers in the NFL. And all of a sudden it is a liability for your offense to hand him the ball. He has zero speed. He has no burst. He can't get to the edge. Um, They really need to phase him out of there. I feel bad because he's like an amazing guy. He's one of those guys that was phenomenal for them when none of the other pieces on that team were ready to go and they probably gave them the ball too much. And this is my fear about Saquon. You know, these years really don't matter. Why not rest them a little bit? Because I agree. I'm looking at David Johnson trying to turn the corner and I'm checking the roster to see if Adrian Peterson's on the roster. That's how slow the turn is. And if you knew David Johnson, that man could jump cut with the best of them. I mean, he, he looked like what the new prototype running back could be and it's gone but look this is a Niners team that eked out the win over the Cardinals we saw Andy Isabella's 88 yards I've talked many times on this podcast about how if Tevin Coleman catches that they could win by 17 he drops that they only win by three but 11 points with an injured Niners team it just it seems a lot Warren it does um I've I've heard that there are some some groups that are going to lay it with the 49ers some already did lay a little bit really Niners, but that's not for me. Um, you look, the 49ers could cover this. They could have a bounce back game. I think Kyle Shanahan is a tremendous coach. I do think that he's got a big edge here over Cliff Kingsbury. Um, but the way to attack this Arizona Cardinals defense is through the air. Um, they're terrible against like 12 personnel sets. Anytime you make it look like run, um, I don't think Matt Burita is a massive loss, but they are without him. But you're without your top two pass catchers. If Emmanuel Sanders is not there, um, and we already talked about you're missing your your stud, George Kittle, like it's going to be very difficult for this passing attack to really exploit that big weakness of the Cardinals defense. Um, I, I would be surprised if the 49ers lost this game to, mm. to truth be told. And there is a great chance that the pass rush can take over and snuff out the Cardinals offensive line and really put Kyler Murray on his back. And we also haven't really seen many games where a team has a second lick at this Cardinals offense. And I think they learn a lot um, that's why rookie quarterbacks tend to tail off a lot just for the 
listeners, a little sharp school, rookie quarterbacks tend to tail off a lot at the end of the season. And that's because the book is out. The book is out. Defenses know what these guys are doing. Defenses know what the play caller is trying to do. So it was great that Kingsbury flipped things up a little bit. Yeah. Using as much 10 personnel, but you know, the 49ers have seen him a couple of weeks ago and are going to be very prepared here, I think. Yeah, if you take away that 88-yard catch from Andy Isabella, which I know is annoying to a lot of people to just remove stats, but the rest of the game, every other drive, Kyler Murray threw for 153 yards against this really good Niners defense. And as everybody right now, I'm seeing a ton of clips of Kyler Murray on Twitter, and you have to remind yourself, he did that against the Tampa Bay Bucks. And there's a lot of quarterbacks in the league right now whose highlight reel against the Bucks is their defining moment. Kyler Murray, Daniel Jones, Teddy Bridgewater, they're the team where if you want to look like you can throw the ball, the Bucks are the team. Um, so it it is one of those like Niners coming off of a loss, Kyler coming off of a really high performance. If the line wasn't 11, if I got it at like six and a half, I would like it a lot more, but that line is so big and there are so many injuries, it makes it tough. Third EDSR advantage. Did you have anything to add after I said all that? Nope. Uh, Rams, big old EDSR advantage over Chicago. You then combine that with a little circadian biorhythm. You also combine that with the fact that Mitchell Trubisky had three touchdowns, and everyone's like, oh, look, three touchdowns, no interceptions. But it was three consecutive drives at the end of the second quarter and the beginning of the third quarter, and they did nothing the rest of the game against a Rams team whose offense looked inept against the second-best defense in the NFL right now in the Pittsburgh Steelers. Again, this is looking actually like a nice little sweet combination with the fact that the Bears are six and a half point dogs. Am I getting too excited about the Rams here, Warren Sharp? Yeah, I don't think you're getting too excited because it's a big number. Number one, laying six and a half points for a Rams team in their current form is not lovely. Sure. That would cause a lot. And they just lost their starting center. They just lost their starting center. Their offensive line already was in shambles and you are still going up against a good Bears defense. Yes. Now the Bears are dealing with a number of injuries themselves defensively. They were without Akeem Hicks, for, and and they still are. And they just lost one of their best defensive playmakers. Um, what's the linebacker's name that they just lost? Um, Who the Bears? Yeah, slipping my mind. No, is it and, Danny Trevathan? Yes, Trevathan. They okay. lost. Him. He's going to be out for a few weeks. His elbow like went backwards. Right. So uh, he's going to be out. So I think the issue becomes with those guys. Um, ailing, right? Could the Rams take advantage of that, run the football a little bit more? Um, When you look at what Chicago has done and where they've looked good, like where Chicago has looked good so far this season, you're going to pinpoint games against the Detroit Lions, and I'm going to pinpoint the game against the LA Chargers, where they should have won against the Chargers, but they lost. But the thing is, in those games, the Chargers ranked 26th defensively, the Detroit Lions ranked 25th defensively. The Rams are a top 10 defense. They actually rank fourth in efficiency metrics right now. They are trending in a positive direction thanks to uh, the addition of probably the best cornerback in the NFL. Um, I think that they should at home here be able to perform pretty well and limit what the Mitchell Trubisky and the Chicago whatever they are right now, uh, is going to be able to do. So, um, yeah, absolutely. The EDSR is in favor of the Rams. I don't love it because I'm down on the Rams 
philosophy offensively. Now that they don't have Brandon Cooks, they really don't have anybody to stretch the field. So that injury hurts them. Um, Their offensive line is a total disaster. And we're finding out what happens when you allocate so much money to a running back who can't even run the football uh, successfully, effectively, and um, for any type of volume like Todd Gurley. And you're dedicating a ton of cap money to Jared Goff, and he's not playing like he was last year, nor at the level that you're paying him. Yeah, again, it's funny how many times the Bears are in a game where I go, up, it's the regression bowl, it's Bears Chargers, up, it's the regression bowl, it's Bears Rams, it's, and the thing is, is that the, the Chicago finds a way to lose those games. The only game that Chicago's won recently was against Jeff Driscoll. Let's not forget that. The fourth biggest EDSR matchup was the Browns over the Steelers. That was Thursday Night Football, and we've already spent time on that. I'm telling you, we just didn't like the mismatches here. Number five was Colts over Jaguars, and you went, not going to use that one. There's too many injury questions with Jacoby Brissett. There's too many injury questions with the wide receivers, and it's and Nick Foles is coming back. It's a cloudy situation. The sixth one was Cowboys over Lions. Again, we're sitting there going, is Stafford going to play? What team are we getting here? And it's off. You said it's off the board right now. Yep. Uh, at, at the time we're recording this on Thursday, early afternoon. Number seven is Saints over Bucks, and I'm looking at that one, and I'm going, man, this is looking like a, the the time for the Bucks get get the revenge here. It's in Tampa Bay, where Tampa Bay has really had an advantage over New Orleans for much of Drew Brees' career. There, Andrews Pete, their starting guard, is out for a few weeks with a broken arm. Lattimore might be out with a hamstring. Now, again, the Tampa Bay secondary is a mess, but is Drew Brees going to take advantage of it? So it's another one that we're kind of all over the place on. Yeah, I think Michael Thomas is going to dominate like he does every week. But uh, did you watch a game like Alvin Kamara did not quite look as bursty and as himself uh, in that game last week? I didn't feel like, uh, you know, their their offensive line is going to be a big issue. As you mentioned, when you're going up against that defensive line, the only thing the Bucks have going for them is their defensive line, at least on that side of the football. And you're going up with a beaten up offensive line. Um, Drew Brees obviously is playing uh, as a pocket quarterback. He has historically struggled a little bit on the road. So I definitely think that there's going to be some potential issues there. Uh, And if you don't have Lattimore and you could take advantage of that, as long as Jameis can stay upright, that's the thing. Um, when I went back and rewatched that game where they played the saints earlier in the year, uh, I, it was like week four or five. The the Bucks. we took the Bucks catching, I think, three and a half in that game. And it was three and a half or four. It was Teddy Bridgewater and not Drew Brees. But they were catching like three, three and a half. Th- uh, sorry, three and a half or four. And the, the Saints punted, I think, the first drive. And then for like eight different drives, they either – they had one punt in that range. And mm. it was either touchdowns, field goals, or turnovers. Like they really were moving the ball effectively on this Tampa Bay Bucks defense. And one of the big issues was probably – I mean I know this because I bet on the game. But Carlton Davis, the Bucks quarterback, was ejected from that game for like a ridiculous hit. I felt like some of those calls in that game because it was in New Orleans were going pro-New Orleans with all the stuff that's happened with the referees in the past. They ejected that guy and the defense completely fell apart. And that was really like on the second or third drive of the game that he was ejected from the game. Um, And Carlton Davis missed last week's game. It's one of the reasons why I was betting on the over when Arizona played the Bucs last week is because no Carlton Davis. He's practicing. Carl Nassib is practicing. Those guys both might be back who missed last week's game. 
Um, so the Bucks defense is going to maybe look a tiny little bit better than what they did in the game in Tampa. Sorry, in the game in New Orleans earlier this year. Uh, it's definitely not one where I would be looking first to lay the Saints. I'm actually looking at going the other direction on that one potentially. Uh, to that point, uh, the last of uh, the last three times New Orleans and Drew Brees have gone down to Tampa, they're one and two. Uh, and also the la- their one win was the last time they went, which was last year. They started that game off down 14 to three. So the Saints have gotten off to some slow starts their last three times in Tampa. And Drew Brees really has not played well. His last three games in Tampa, 201, 245, 257, and a two, two touchdown, four interception ratio. And he's only been sacked four times, but now without Andrews Pete and an offensive line that I just saw get dominated by the Falcons. If I was going to go one way, I'd go Tampa, but you know how I feel about betting on Tampa and Jameis Winston. Yeah, he's scarred you probably more than anybody else that I can recall this season. Um, it's it's tough. It's I'm tough. praying that Cleet Blakeman was the referee in the Tampa Bay Saints game. You think there's any chance it was? Uh, I'll tell you one second. I've got his uh, his game log pulled up here. Hold Please, on. Please, if it's freaking him, I'll lose my shit. No, it okay. was not. Who was it in that game? Oh, you can't find it. All right, I'll, I'll look it up. It's pulled up, yeah. I don't know. Okay. Um, all right, let us move then to the biggest games of the week, and we'll start off first with uh, two teams coming off of a bye close to my heart, Eagles, Patriots, uh Belichick loses before the bye to Lamar Jackson, now has a week to get ready for the Eagles. Uh, the the Patriots, for the most part, are healthy right now. Uh, they do have a few people that were limited, but they're also starting to get some people back. Uh, Nate Ebner missed practice. Patrick Chung and Matt Lacoste and Danny Shelton did take the field. Overall, they're healthy. Philly right now, Alshon uh, and Nigel Bradham did not practice. Jordan Howard and Jason Peters were both limited. They're coming off a two-game winning streak over Mitchell Trubisky and Josh Allen. So the Bills and the Bears. Uh, where do you want to start here? I would like to start with the Eagles defense and Tom Brady. Okay, so uh, think back to the Super Bowl where the Patriots, I don't think, punted one time. Okay, so I'm going to throw some things out to you that you're not going to like as an Eagles fan. Oh, this uh, is the Jim Schwartz, uh, Jim uh, Josh McDaniels matchup. Yeah, it's not going to be pretty. So Jim Schwartz, I believe the numbers show that he has averaged uh, allowing 35 points per game when he's played the Patriots, when he's been the defense coordinator, 35 points per game. Now, wow. we're talking about a number of years, right? And Jim Schwartz, uh, the, the defense this year, has trouble in the secondary, but this is not the same Patriots offense. We cannot kid ourselves whatsoever here. Dante Scarnecchia has his work cut out for this offensive line. They're a bad offensive line right now. They're struggled to keep Tom Brady clean. They are also a team without much of a deep threat. I mean, when Mohamed Sanu is the main guy who's working down the field for you, you know you're in in in, in trouble. Um, they will get a little bit more integration with Sanu off of the bye week, I think. So that definitely helps. But it's not the explosive team. They also don't have the dynamic ability with their tight end because Gronkowski's no longer there and they really don't have many tight ends. So their personnel packages, like the potential personnel packages, have slimmed down a little bit. It's narrowed in terms of what the Patriots offense is able to throw at. 
uh, Jim Schwartz. But just know that historically it has not gone very well for Schwartzy. Um, one of the things that I'm interested to see when we're talking about this side of the football is the matchup when the Patriots decide to go up-tempo. They call it their turbo package. They go fast. And they chose to go fast against the Baltimore Ravens last game out. And look at the number variance between these two. When they huddled up, they had a 46% success rate. When they went turbo, that improved to 62%. When they huddled up, their passes were only 45% successful. When they went turbo, that increased to 58%. And when they huddled up, their runs were only 50% successful. When they went turbo, that increased to 73%. Wow. They said they couldn't implement even as much turbo as they wanted to because of injuries and not everybody on the same page. Well, they so, just had a bye week, pal. They just had a bye week. Theoretically, they got a little bit healthier and they could do a better job of getting on the same page. So one of the best strengths of the Philadelphia Eagles is their pass rush, then their defensive line. And if you're the Patriots and you can somehow reduce that rotation and wear down those defensive linemen, I would think that that would be in your best interest to do so. Um, so I'm curious. That's the first thing if we're talking about that side of the ball is, yes, the Patriots have not really played very many good teams. The Eagles definitely have a much better defense than what the Patriots are accustomed to playing. Uh, but secondly, the Eagles could be in for trying to deal with a speed, up-tempo package of the Patriots. So you just told me that uh, Jim Schwartz has allowed 35 points per game against the Patriots. You just told me that the Patriots have been wildly successful, speeding the game up, increasing the play speed, getting more plays in. And then after a bye, now they're going to be more healthy. But Belichick is clearly going to look at this because he's the one guy we can bank on doing this and likely implementing it more. So the only thing that I'm doing right now is I'm looking at the total which is at 45, and I'm asking you, on the other side of the ball, are the Eagles going to help me get there, or could this be a one-sided affair? Well, see, that's the interesting part. The Eagles, uh, I would assume their offensive line is a little bit healthier. They've had issues with Jason Peters at left tackle. Um, and they do have some issues, though, at some of their bigger positions. I know that um, their number one running back, uh, he missed practice yesterday, or at yep, least Jordan was, Howard was limited. Jordan Howard limited, and their number one wide receiver, Alshon Jeffrey, who you can argue, you know, he's not the greatest number one wide receiver. You probably don't love him, but he also, uh, I think, missed practice entirely due to an ankle injury. Yep. And his game status is so questionable that they brought in Jordan Matthews. And you know, when you're bringing back Jordan <laughs> Matthews, that you're in a position of weakness. Oh, um, that's the worst. Uh, you obviously got rid of the guy because you didn't think you needed him. Um, My question is this, Warren. We know the Eagles have had success this year running two tight end sets and pounding you in the face. And the one way that teams have had success against the Patriots is pounding them in the face. Ravens, Browns, Bills, we've seen teams have success. Can the Eagles do that this week? Yes, they can. My lone issue is what does... What does Bill Belichick do with McCourty if you don't have to deal with Alshon Jeffries? Are you going to waste him on Jordan Matthews or are you going to try to stick him on one of the tight ends? You know, are you going to try to stick him on Ertz? And what will that do? Because um, that's my biggest concern there. But I, I would say yes. Belichick's number one thing is what is your number one option? And let's take it away. And the number one option for the Eagles offense is Zach Ertz. 
And I right. would say number two, if it's not Miles Sanders, it's it might be Dallas Goddard. Yeah, it's probably no, Alshon. It's it's it. Def, I think it it could be Goddard, but like from a target perspective, they're in, incorporating him on a lower basis. So he's not really the difference maker in games, but he can make those couple of plays when you are targeting him to make a difference. But he's not consistently getting. Yeah. Targets, So I would like them to use a little bit more 12 personnel and throw the football a little bit more to their tight ends. Uh, definitely, they should be able to have some success running the football. I'm going to be interested to see what the Patriots did from their self-scout to improve that run defense. But um, on this side of the ball, you know, obviously they've had some explosive plays, uh, I think, in five of their last seven games. Take a guess. You're, you're the Philly guy, sure. right? Which offensive player has the longest play for the Eagles in five of the last seven games. It's oh, I think it's Miles Sanders. Yep, Miles Sanders. So he's been super explosive. Can they work in a little bit more Miles Sanders into the receiving game uh, to, to create some of those explosive plays here? That's going to be super interesting to me. Hmm. I don't know. I, I guess my I'm, I'm looking at that game now and the sides, I'm, I'm not really sure. I would probably lean towards the Patriots. But as a total, I don't know if the Eagles are going to help me get to the 45. I can't tell because I think it's in their benefit to pound the rock, especially to give their defense time to recoup after the, after the Patriots go turbo. 45 is an interesting number there. Yeah, and if you look at the Baltimore, if, if you look at the New England Patriots and who they've gone up against. Ooh, is uh, that the president? Eh, not the president of the NFL Players Association. Well, they heard me talking about Cleet, and uh, I think that's could be Goodell saying, "You know, guys." You just got, got invited to go to the Kaepernick workout on Saturday. That's what that is. Yeah, that thing is a. Uh, I don't know. That thing is a, a mess. But at any rate, with regard to this, the Patriots have only faced teams with offenses that rank bottom ten in the NFL. And then they played the Baltimore Ravens, who ranked third. So the Eagles are above average. They're uh, top half of the league in offensive. Okay despite all of their problems um they they doug peterson that style of offense you know the andy reed uh tree of coaching even look at what matt nagy was able to do when the patriots went to chicago and they had some success putting up points so uh, mm. this style has given belichick a few problems along the way uh, but it, it's going to be a super super awesome game i mean by far it's the best game in that late slate I'm actually glad you and I talked about this last night. My first inclination was, man, why are you shoving the Houston-Baltimore game, which we're going to talk about next, in this 1 o'clock slate, giving us eight games there, give us some more at the 4 o'clock. But then we both sort of realized the rest of those 1 o'clock games, apart from like a couple of interesting division matchups and then the Jacksonville Indy game, which has some divisional implications. Yes. Most of them are between teams with losing records or not really all that compelling. Um, the Houston-Baltimore game is going to be the game everybody's going to watch in that slate, and then they're going to tune into this Patriots-Eagles game. We've got a great Sunday of football with the marquee games um, on those 1 o'clock and 4 o'clock. Yeah, because if those two games were on at the same time, it would be tough to flip back and forth. But the fact that Houston-Baltimore, it is the premier 1 o'clock game. It is the largest total of Sunday right now. It's at 51.5, and, and I'm looking at your... Uh, uh, website right now and just watching the lines. I believe the over has been getting bet this morning. I'm seeing it now going up to 51 and a half. I think it was at, 
It opened at 49, and we're already at 51 and a half. And I think a little bit is it's Deshaun Watson. It's Lamar Jackson. These two guys fought it out in college, hung up monster numbers when it was Clemson, Louisville. They're two teams right now. Houston is coming off of a bye. And I don't think any team is clicking as strong as Baltimore. So let's go with the the star of the show, Lamar Jackson right now in that Baltimore offense, taking on a J.J. Wattless defense of the Texans and Romeo Crennel. And how do you see, do you see Baltimore keeping it going with their three tight end defensive tackle playing fullback sets? I see Baltimore being able to do what they want through the air in this game. I mean, when you're the, when you're the Houston Texans, and you go out and you make the move that they just did in free agency for Vernon Hargraves, who is, like, really not good. He's, like, 108 out of 115 cornerbacks based on their uh, passer rating allowed so far this season. He's the type of name-only move that you would make if you're desperate and you don't really know how to evaluate guys. But you see a former first-round draft pick and you know your secondary kind of stinks, so you scoop him up. I told you last night, this is like a Dan Snyder move where Dan Snyder goes in, oh my God, uh, I get the opportunity to take Albert Hainsworth here and I can get Deion Sanders. I don't care if they're a little bit past their prime. They're name value recognition guys and they can come in and maybe contribute here and you amass all these guys that actually aren't playing well right now and are past their prime. That's what I get from Vernon Hargraves. Um, hmm. Oh, the one issue, though, that I will caution about Baltimore is the Houston Texans have been very good against tight ends. One of the best teams in the NFL at taking, I think they're number two in success rate allowed. Wow. Tight ends. So the, the the interesting concept, though, is that the way that Baltimore plays offense, it's so unique. Those tight ends are doing so many things differently than other teams that I don't know how that's going to play out ultimately. But I definitely think that there's some edges here for the Baltimore Ravens offensively uh, to attack this defense. And when you think about you don't have J.J. Watt. I think this is what his second game that he's been out because they had a bye last week. Right. He missed game against, uh, what was it, the Oakland Raiders, I think, uh, right before this. Um, so you're in a situation where you're definitely going to be dealing with uh, a worse pass rush from Houston and a worse run defense because he's actually a really good run defender. So I think those things all are going to be chips in the favor of the Baltimore Ravens. And the one thing I will say about Baltimore from a coaching perspective is last week was the game they were supposed to be flat. They were not supposed to show up no. in Cincinnati. That was a game that uh, I said before the season, I like this team. We bet their overs. We bet their futures. We like Baltimore more than what the market did. That's the only reason you're betting on something before the season. You think the market's too wrong on that particular team. Time out. thing I saw during the wait, season. Wait, 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 wait. Did you just move the Houston line? You motherfucker. I was sitting here and I'm going... Oh, I'm seeing a lot of movement right now in the Houston game, Baltimore going over. And then I go to your website and I go to active recommendations and it says Houston over split. Take Houston over 24, over 50. I'm giving it away because you moved the line live during this podcast, you son of a bitch. I had to. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> because I got so hyped on it that you were like, I need to put this out right now. I actually did Look at your smile right now. When you, were, when you were talking about it, you can go back and watch this this on tape. When you were talking about the line moving, I had a coy little um, smirk on my face by what I was trying to like not showcase it too much. So you, I can't. I am doing a podcast with somebody that made 
a click, and then all of a sudden, all of Vegas reacted to it. So you got it at 24 at half and 50 for the game, and I look currently at the lines, so you got it at 50, and right now I'm seeing at the Westgate at 51 and a half. So you're telling me they jumped up, and it's moving now at the Bavada. Yeah, Cantor's, Cantor's the high watermark on that one. They're at 52 right now. Now, I will say, since we kind of gave gave the uh, recipe away for this one, if you do like the over, I would certainly wait. I th- There is a group that likes the under on this game is opposite of what I think, and they will probably bet this game back down, and 51 is a very key number. Okay. So I would look to be finding a 51 later and maybe even a 49 and a half and take the over later if you're still interested. Now, the first half, I would not do anything on the first half. Uh, That's now at like 26 or 25 at some spots. 24 was the number we're looking for there. So I would not. You're amazing. You're amazing. What was the game this past weekend that if you waited, it actually did come down? Was that Uh, Seattle, San Francisco? The Seattle-San Francisco game, yeah, I, that was one where, because we were doing the free week last week, I took over 45 last Monday, I believe, um, so a week before the game even kicked off. And that game was hovering 47, 47 and a half, closer to you know game day the couple days before. And I basically said, look, 47 is somewhat of a key number here. I would definitely wait. This thing should drop to 46 and a half. And if you want the over then, I would reduce your bet size, go maybe a half unit on the over at 46 and a half. And of course, it did go down to 46 and a half. And uh, a lot fell in our favor late, but that one did catch. But it was proof to what you've said before, which is if the number crosses what you wanted and you go and you're like, oh, I'm going to bet this and it went up a point and a half. It is worth it to wait as it gets closer to game time because most people will even it out. But you just a lot of people like to set it and forget it, you know, to quote Ron Popeil. And they like and I get it, but it's the value. You have to wait for it. I, I do that, too. I hate it. The worst weeks for me, the most frustrating weeks for me are when I am waiting on a game. I've got the game loaded up in my system. I'm ready to send it out. We're ready to bet it. And it's Monday. It's Tuesday. And the line isn't right where I want. And I think that there could be some under money come in or some over money come in so that I can get a better number later. And I'm having to wait on a detailed write up and a good mm. bet like all the way until like Sunday during the day. You know, yeah. that's worse for me, but it's <sighs> got to get the good numbers. Man, you got my offshore place at 52 now in Houston, Baltimore. You're crazy. You're a monster. All right. Anyway, back to this game. You were saying you were going to look up Romeo Cornell versus mobile quarterbacks. Do you have something on that? I don't have anything on that yet, but when I do, when I get to my write-up, I'll definitely have something. Okay. Um, what about the other side? What about Houston and Deshaun Jackson against a Baltimore defense that they've been putting up points the last few weeks? Whether it's Humphreys or Peters, they're scoring points on that side of the ball, which is great for overs. But what about Deshaun? How do you see them attacking the Ravens' D? That's the scariest part of this game because I don't really know what the Baltimore defense currently is right now. Their secondary is playing a lot better. Um, If you are betting a game over the total, you sort of want Deshaun to be trailing because that's when he gets more dangerous and he's pushing the ball down the field um, a little bit more often. We'll see if Will Fuller is back for this game. I assumed that he was going to be out, but if he actually does end up playing here, 
which I think he practiced on a limited basis, that would be a big boon for um, this total and for the Texans offense in general. The one thing that I that, that stands out to me a little bit is that the Baltimore Ravens rank number 30, number 30 defending running back passes. And you got Duke Johnson for the Houston Texans as a safety valve for Deshaun Watson. The other factor here is that the Baltimore Ravens rank number 27 in pass rush. So their pass rush isn't really getting home. It's one of Jim Harbaugh's, or sorry, John Harbaugh's real frustrations with the team for a number of weeks. So if they can't get home on Watson, and that's the weakness of the Houston Texans is their offensive line. If the offensive line can give him enough time, and when it doesn't, he can throw the ball to his running back. So those are the two weaknesses of the Ravens defense. Um, he could be in a pretty good shape. And the other thing here, too, is that the Ravens rank 28th stopping the run. And um, that's another element where the Houston Texans rank number 12 in rushing efficiency. I've been surprised by Carlos Hyde and what he's definitely. been doing. I definitely didn't feel like he was going to be quite as good. But Baltimore, they're, uh, what is it? What did I just say? They're 20 against the run. Yeah. Despite playing the second easiest schedule of run offenses over the last four weeks, I start looking at this this time of year, their trending defense, they ranked dead last in the NFL over the last month, stopping the run. And guess who they've played? The freaking Cincinnati Bengals twice, the, the Seattle Seahawks and the uh, New England Patriots. So I'm looking at this as a team where I think Houston possibly could run the ball a little bit. If Deshaun has a little bit of time in the pocket, if he could throw the football to his running back, you know, it is going to be hard. The challenge will be throwing the ball down the field. But the other thing I love about watching this game, two mobile quarterbacks. And you, you, you know this, Adam, but when teams have the ability to get their quarterback to, like, avoid that one rusher, how many times have you seen a game where it's like this guy's open down the field, the quarterback might be able to hit it, but he has to pull it down and then he gets sacked because there's one free rusher who's on him. But if that quarterback can avoid that dude, a bunch more stuff opens up down the field. And both of these quarterbacks are capable of moving in the pocket to still throw the ball down the field, just like Russell Wilson is. They're not just moving to run. They'll get those free yards if you're going to give it to them, but they're looking to th still throw the football down the field. So uh, it's definitely a game where I think uh, Houston could have some success. That's why I don't think this is the slam dunk that everybody thinks um, taking Baltimore, laying four, four and a half. I mean, very much so Baltimore could win this game and it could be a fun, exciting 17 point win at home. Um, but there's certainly the opportunity for the Houston Texans to take advantage of some of those weaknesses of Baltimore's defense. I do think it's interesting just because with Houston coming off of a bye, uh, teams coming off of a bye this year, like we said, are not doing well. Rams came off of a bye last week, didn't go well. Saints came off a bye. Granted, it was against the Falcons team coming off of a bye, but the better team coming off of a bye there fell flat on their face. I think teams coming off of a bye last week went one and three. And so you have Houston, and there's a huge coaching mismatch in Harbaugh versus Billy O'Brien and Romeo Cornell. I believe there's a big special teams advantage too with Baltimore, but the thing is, is you bet against people like Deshaun Watson at your own risk because there is nothing better than having Lamar Jackson and Deshaun Watson on your side as you attack the over. But if you're betting against Deshaun Watson, those last few minutes of the game are going to feel a little bit hopeless. Because that's what he makes defenders feel. And that's what you'll feel, I think, if you bet that. It's a, it's a tough game. It's a fun game, though. It's going to be a great game to watch. I couldn't agree with you more. 100% on everything you just said. I think, I My think it's going to be exciting.
My question is Kansas City Chargers. We didn't prepare for this at all. I'm just going to ask you quickly because I know we got to go. Um, Monday Night Football, the fact that it's in Mexico City, how does that impact the way that you look at that game just from a location standpoint? Well, you know, we had the issues with the field. I think the field is in much better shape this year. We were going to play it. There were so many concerns about it. They ended up moving the game to L.A. as their home game um, last year. The Chargers have been practicing at elevation um, in Colorado Springs. And Anthony Lynn said, I've talked to experts and they say it's not going to help us. It doesn't matter. You got to be out there longer than just a week to get prepared. But I don't care. I've played in games where I went from sea level up to elevation and it impacted me. And you know what I say to that? Kudos to you, Anthony Lynn. I'm glad that you are taking some of your personal experiences and working towards using them in a manner to make smarter decisions. It's not pure analytics, but analytics is about using data to try to make more educated decisions. I'm glad he's doing that for the team. And even if it doesn't physically help them all that much, mentally, that's a big deal. It's going to give a lot more confidence to this offense and to this team in general. Um, my biggest factor for this game is I'm really concerned about this Chiefs offensive line. We got to look at the practice reports. There's a lot of injuries going on with this Chiefs offensive yes. line. Already have a quarterback who looked pretty good, better than I thought he was going to, but he does have an injury. It is probably not quite 100%, and you don't want him taking a lot of licks back there. Um, the other thing about this game on the flip side, the way that you beat the Kansas City Chiefs is by running the football on them. We've seen the Titans do that. We've seen the Colts do that. They've got a good pass defense. It's not the same pass defense as we saw last year. So the problem with the Chargers is they're one of the most pass-heavy teams in the NFL. Um, so they're going to have to switch their attitude and strategy and try to rely more on the run game and hope that it's efficient with Melvin Gordon and hope that he's back and can churn out yards. Uh, so that's going to be interesting from their game plan and strategy. Yeah. For sure. Well, the first thing I thought of was, okay, you just told me that when there are some games that are more high, high profile, that a game that's in another country on Monday Night Football is definitely high profile, and that referees in those games tend to call less holding penalties. Uh, and so maybe that's an advantage for Kansas City to handle, as we like to call in this program, the program, which is Bosa and Ingram. Um, and, you know, if I hear that the Chargers throw a lot and Patrick Mahomes, I start looking at the total and I go, okay, I mean, 52 is a big number, but Maybe maybe the fact that it's a, a big televised game will allow the, the teams to get away with some stuff to allow more points to go on the board. Just a thought. Yeah, I don't have anything right now on this total. It is kind of a big number. It could be warranted if these teams try to use a little bit of tempo, especially we saw the Chargers implement. They're one of the slowest teams in the NFL, but there were a couple periods with their new offense coordinator that they did actually use a little bit of tempo and had some moderate success. I mean, let's be honest, Phillip Rivers just like killed. Yeah, but you know what? But one of Phillip Rivers, the only thing he does well is when it is hurry up and he's calling the plays, He he can then he can like dink and dunk and move it. But when he's running a straight offense, it's awful. If if you can hurry him up, I would do it. I would do hurry up just from the simple perspective that the play clock's not going to be three, two, one oh. with him happen like a madman behind center each shotgun. It seems like that's like that's really the thing I'm going to remember most about this guy. But 
If this you is can- Phillip Rivers. This is Phillip Rivers in a nutshell. Cut, 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 cut. Doesn't come in. Darn it. Rips, rips the fr- the chin strap off. Goes to the sideline and then he like blames other people. And it's like, dude, you've been doing this for a decade. And you've been changing the plays. You're running around. You're trying to talk to this guy. Yes. Oh, talk to this lineman and tell him this little tip. Like, just freaking call the play. So if you can do that and and get the snap off with. 15 seconds left, 12 seconds left. Big advantage for the offensive yeah. coordinator for the Sandy, for the LA Chargers, for sure. Um, if you have subscribed to Sharp Football uh, Analysis, good for you. I'm sure it's going to be a good week. Again, he already gave out. See if that line goes down at all with Houston and Baltimore. That's when you want to take it. Uh, because we're recording earlier today, we cannot get to crack. But again, as always, check out the Crack Wins app. I love the interface. I love using it. I think it's an easy way for me to see the spreads. And I like to see what Crack's free pick is. And as I've told you before, college basketball is when Crack goes crazy. This is an NFL show, so we're not going to break it down, but that's where he finds the advantages. So definitely check out my man Crack's Crack Wins app. Uh, SharpFootballAnalysis.com. If you're checking it out, awesome. Uh, And as always, you can hit up Warren on social media at SharpFootball. I am at Adam Lefko. If he has any more nuggets, follow him on social. He'll put them out there. Warren, you're the freaking man. Have a great day. Anything you want to say to the homies before we leave? Just steer clear of the hawk, fellas. Steer clear of the hawk. And if it's brick, the hawk is coming. See you guys. (laughs)